0: As a kid, uh, I would hear uh, this saying from my dad, uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. So I've heard it quite a lot uh, to kind of in time learn uh, how to set my intentions so that I would not be mistaken for something else, how to make them clear and how to execute. Because the Difference between a good intention and a bad outcome, it's filled up with a lot of disappointment. So at one point uh, I've been through uh, a recovery program and I figure out how the addiction works. It's clear, you just have to follow a few steps. I did this work uh, and all of a sudden everything became more clear, way much better life so at the end of this road uh, i thought that i am prepared and i know enough about addiction to be able to help anyone going through it so i decided at one point that my friend needed uh, my help uh, because he was like really deep in alcohol addiction and uh, so i've told him that i'm gonna help him uh, go over it It's not a very complicated uh, road. It's fairly simple and clear. You just have to follow a few steps. It's a lot of work, but it's doable. So we started talking about uh, what uh, can be the cause of his addiction, uh, what some of the events he processes, as trauma and how he can go over it. At the end of our long conversation, actually, my friend felt judged and uh, criticized. The opposite of what I was looking for, what I was hoping. That doesn't help an addict at all to, to fell into the shame. So of course, after the conversation we had, based on the way he was feeling, uh, our friendship uh, got kind of damaged. And of course, our, uh, he was my roommate as well. So the living arrangement went sour. Although I had all these good intentions, the outcome wasn't where I wanted. And uh, I think sometimes this is how life is, and uh, we learn every time.
1: Yeah, thank you, Leave You. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that story. Thank you to everybody who's been sharing your campfire stories. Hey, my name is Ryan. I'm the lead pastor. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. It's wonderful to have you in this space. If you are online tuning in for the first time, thank you. If you're out in the atrium enjoying the patio, Great to have you a part of our Campfire Story series. As always, if you'd like to have coffee, if we've not had the opportunity to have coffee, hear your story, catch up, see what's going on. My cell phone number's right there in the program. It's on the website on the New Here page. Just shoot me a text message, we'll get that set up. I would love to do that. It's one of my favorite things in the world to do. So, thank you very much. Hey, listen, how many of you have ever been misunderstood? Raise your hand up nice and high. Ever had your your intentions questioned? Y'all ever... um, questioned the intentions of your children? (laughs) Come on now. Like, you're laughing because you know it's true. Like, they do something really out of character, and you're like, what'd you do? (laughs) Right? What do you want? Right? That's what we do, right? We've done something nice, and somebody's like, well, what do you want? Like, they couldn't possibly imagine, right? There are things that will cause our intentions to be questioned, in this world, right? There's, there's some pretty uh, standard reasons why someone would question your intentions or my intentions, right? So, let me ask this question. Uh, one of the reasons, one of the ways in which our intentions will be questioned is if we have a history with duplicitous actions, right? That's your first fill-in. I wanted to make it a good one for today. For those of you that are fill-in people, like, spell that with your eyes closed, right? duplicitous, right? Now, the question is this. We always think when I ask that question, oh, have, have I met somebody who's duplicitous, right? They say one thing, do something different, and that'll cause you to question their intentions, but it could be your own actions. Do you or I have a history of being duplicitous, of saying one thing and doing the other, right? Because that will get your intentions questioned, right? That history of not following through, that history of really always having like an ulterior motive to our actions. Another, another reason that will, that another way in which our actions or our intentions will be questioned would be if we ever act in a way opposite to kind of the cultural expectation, right? So let's, let's think about that, like your work. How many of you all work somewhere? Some of you are like, no, nah, I just get a paycheck, I don't work, they just... I don't get a paycheck, but I do work. right? I know that one too, right? We work somewhere, whether it's at home, an office, uh, whether we're in, in the construction, whatever it might be, right? we have this kind of work. If you act counter to the cultural expectations of your work, people will start to question your motivations, right? So if you work in an environment that's highly competitive, highly competitive, there's only so many spots, and you start helping other people succeed right? You know, like, what's up with that? What's she all about? Something's going on there, right? I have a friend who works for one of those agencies that has three letters in it, you know, and he came, he went from the public, he went from the private sector to then go work in the public sector, and every time we get on the phone, he's just like, I don't understand what's wrong with these people. Like, it seems like everybody just wants to get a pension. Like, so he works really hard, tries to create efficiencies, and like, he just has met with resistance all the time. So his motivations are always questioned, right? Because everybody's like, chill out. Just get your 20 and relax, you know? And he's like, why are we wasting so much taxpayers' money, right? That's why I don't pay taxes. So <laughs> I have insider information, you know. Think about your family, right? The culture of your family is the culture of your family to hold a grudge. Is that the nature? Is that one of the rules of the game, right? And all of a sudden, you start offering forgiveness. Ooh, that'll shake things up real quick, right? So whenever we act counter to that cultural uh, expectation, reality, people will start to question our intentions, right? And when that happens, you all know that feeling, like there's a physical feeling that happens. When our intentions get questioned, when we're trying to say do a right thing, I don't know if it's the right thing, but we're trying to do a right thing. And all of a sudden, it gets questioned. We can feel deflated, right? It's just like all the air goes out of our sails, right? I can imagine leave you trying to kind of share this journey and help this friend. And all of a sudden, it gets questioned and he realizes this hasn't worked out. You just feel so deflated because it feels like an attack on our integrity, right? How could somebody think I would do it? No. And in that moment, we kind of have a choice. We can like throw our hands up in the air. We can blame the other person. We just say, forget it, why do I even try, you ever said that? I said that like most, I would say like between the ages of four and how old are my kids right now? I feel like those were, why do I even try, right, that was the, but we, we could do that. And, and because here's what happens, in that moment when our motivations are questioned, when we feel like our integrity, the reasons behind what we're doing. When those get questioned, it exposes something really interesting. It exposes our resiliency. It exposes kind of our stick Like, how resilient will we be? Will we just abandon the path that we're on because someone has questioned our motivations or our intentions? Will we abandon a call that we might feel we're experiencing? Will we just kind of give it up? What will we do in that moment? Will we quit or will we carry on? And that's an issue of resiliency. And there is, and, and it's amazing how that can, that moment of having our motivations, our, our intentions questioned can go right to the heart of it and we can just feel like we want to quit. Well, our story today that I want to talk about is really a story of resiliency. It's really a picture and gives us some wisdom for those moments in our life when our intentions are questioned and we have to face this dilemma. What do we do? Do we get angry? Do we lash back? Do we just go silent, do we quit, what do we do? And I wanna talk about the story of David and Goliath, right? How many of you ever heard the story of David and Goliath, right? Yeah, it's kind of a fan favorite, right? You're going, what in the world does this have to do with resiliency, all right? Well, just hang in there, hopefully I will deliver, okay? Now the story of David and Goliath is in the book of 1 Samuel, which is found in the first part of the Christian Bible, also called the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. Old Testament is a little pejorative to our you know, Hebrew brothers and sisters, our Jewish friends, so we like to prefer to use the phrase Hebrew Bible, I do, over Old Testament, because that can get misunderstood, right? So First and 2 Samuel are these two books they're found in this collection of writings, and they kind of tell the story of how Israel moved from being a group of 12 disparate tribes to a monarchy, to a kingdom, and then actually to two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So it kind of tells that story. It was probably compiled and put together in the exile period, so somewhere in, you know, around 500 or so BC, um, probably not written by Samuel because it talks about Samuel's death just throwing that out there. Okay. That's it's a cool trick, right? I mean, <laughs> it's a very cool trick if you can do that. But uh, so, so some great stories in there, very interesting textual like criticism that goes along with it because if you read it straight through, you're like, wait a second, he already met him. And then they're meeting again for the first time two chapters later, right? So it's, some, it's kind of complex in its tradition, but it tells us these wonderful stories, particularly of Saul, the very first king of Israel, His kind of failure in the eyes of the author, okay? History is always told through a lens, okay? So Samuel is told, interestingly enough, through a pro-Davidic, pro-Jerusalem, pro-Southern Kingdom lens. All right, so it's always good to remember that. And then you have this ascendancy of King David, who becomes known as the greatest king in the history of Israel, whose lineage gives us the Messiah. As Christians, we kind of hold that Jesus fulfills that claim uh, on the game. And so that's kind of what all of First and Second Samuel is about. Now, the story of David and Goliath kind of in that book takes place after Saul has been rejected as king because he wouldn't murder and kill and um, rape the women. It's kind of interesting. But like Samuel tells Saul, put the Agagites under the ban, kill all the women, all the children, all the babies, kill them all all their animals, kill them all. And Saul doesn't do that. And so he's rejected as king. It's kind of a weird ethic, right? So there's some problems with the story to the modern mind. I understand that, right? So let's just, before we vilify Saul, right, he seems to have a pretty positive moment where he's like, I don't think killing pregnant women is a good idea, right? But but at any rate, he's rejected. Because again, it's written by people who are defending the Davidic kingship, right? You could kind of see why that would happen. So he's kind of rejected. Samuel goes, and he is told to go into Bethlehem to this guy named Jesse's house, and he's supposed to pick the next king from Jesse's house. Now, Jesse was kind of a big deal. He was head of, like, the local Jewish synagogue region there, according to tradition. He had eight sons. So Samuel shows up, and he says, Bring out the boys. Let's find out what's going on, right? So he visits Bethlehem, and they bring out seven of the eight, isn't that interesting? Bring out seven of the eight. And, and, and Samuel goes through all seven. And he's like, nope, 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 nope. I, I, is this all you've got? And then there's like this, oh, well, there's this other one. <laughs> there's this other one, but he's out in the field, tending the sheep. And Samuel's like, well, bring him in. And you're immediately asked the question, why is David not in the lineup? Do you all wonder that if you've ever heard this story? Like, why was David not? We don't really hear that. He was just out in the field. Well, this is a question that had plagued a lot of commentators for a long time. And legend has it that David was not a stranger to the contempt of his brothers. Do you all know how David was born? Oh, I got you on that one. You're like, I've been in the church my whole life. I don't know how David was born. Do you even know David's mother's name? No, of course we don't know because it's not in the Bible. And if it's not in the Bible, we know there's no value to it anyplace else in the world. So there's this wonderful story in the Midrash, which is Jewish commentary on the scriptures. And the rabbis would get around and they would answer all these questions. And they would say, what is going on? And so here's this beautiful legend about David and his birth and why his brothers rejected him and where some of the Psalms come from. And it all goes back to his birth. Now, what you have to know is, how many of y'all ever heard of the story of Ruth? Ruth, right? Another book in the Hebrew Bible. Well, Ruth is this story of redemption. Ruth is a foreigner. She's a Moabite person. And Boaz is an Israelite. And Boaz ends up marrying Ruth, right? And Ruth ends with this lineage that is given. So Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a son named Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David, y'all are following along. I love it. You're with me this morning. So Ruth is a really important character because Ruth breaks the, like Boaz, in a sense, breaks the law. The oral tradition would say an Israelite could never marry a foreigner. Well, Well, Boaz does. So there's all this controversy, by the way, around this marriage, and the tradition has it that Boaz died very shortly after he and Ruth were married. And so Ruth has this son, Obed, and there's all the talk in the town. Is this kid really an Israelite? I mean, you're not allowed to do this. This is against the law. And so there's all this controversy about Obed and whether or not he's a legitimate Israelite. But what happens over time is Obed becomes such an upstanding moral person, the community says, well, of course he's an Israelite. You would never be this Holy and perfect and righteous if you weren't an Israelite, a true Israelite. And the same thing with Jesse. Jesse grows up and he becomes known as this very righteous figure in the community. And so everybody's like, oh, of course. But because Jesse was such a righteous person, later on in his life, he goes through like a, a midlife crisis of identity. And he starts to wonder, am I really an Israelite? And if I'm not really an Israelite, this wife who I've married, whose name is Nitzavet, who they've had seven sons with, he is actually making her break the law. And as a righteous person, Jesse can't have this. So he says, I don't know what I'm going to do. So he says, I can't remain married to her because I'm causing her to break the law. So he separates from Nitzavet. They've had these seven sons. They separate from her, and he's trying to find out: Am I really an Israelite? Am I so? After several years of being apart, Jesse starts to say to himself, "I want another child. I want another child, but I can't go back to Nitzavet because if I go back to Nitzavet, I might be causing her to break the law." So he has this idea: I'll take my Canaanite slave as a wife. Maybe you've heard this one before. And he says, "What I'll do is then I'll have a child with." her. And so he goes and he concocts this scheme. And this way, she'll become free and she'll be married to me. There's a possibility of it. And so there's some ancient laws that are in play, but he says, this is what I'm going to do. Well, the maidservant, she's very close with Nitzavit. And she says, I can't do this to her. Her heart is broken. She loves her husband. How am I going to do this? So she goes and tells her this plan that Jesse has, and they scheme together and they're going to do the old switcheroo if you're familiar with the story of Rachel and Leah with Jacob, right? They're going to do the old switcheroo. Let's just get Jesse a little tipsy. And at some point in the evening's festivities, we'll swap. And that's what they do. So they swap. And of course, Nitzhevich gets pregnant with child number eight. Now, to Jesse's mind... Nitzavit, and he have not had any kind of relationships for years. But all of a sudden, three months later, Nitzavit shows that she's pregnant. So it looks like she's had an affair. And oh man, the children, the seven sons, they get ticked off at their mother, Nitzavit. They want to kill her. And here's what's interesting. Nitzavit, because she doesn't want to embarrass Jesse, takes a vow of silence, refuses to say anything from here on out. So she takes a vow of silence. And Jesse, because of his love for Netzeva, in the midst of everything, he tells his sons, here's the deal, leave her alone. Just leave her alone. But the child that's going to be born, you treat that child as a lowly, despised servant, however you want to. And so from that time on, when David was born, he was the outcast. He wasn't allowed to sit at the table to eat. He had to eat at a different table. He was sent out into the fields where there were bears and lions and hopes That the bears and the lions would destroy him while he was tending sheep. He was the outcast. Eventually, people in the whole community would know this and understand that David was full of sin. David was the outcast. In fact, the tradition had it that the community looked at David and said, Here's what happened. Like all of those beautiful genetic qualities of righteousness, all the positive qualities of Boaz, those were manifested in Jesse, the father. But all the negative, nasty, Moabite qualities of Ruth, those were exhibited in that despicable young son of his. If something would come up missing in the community, David would get blamed for it. And so David was always seen as the scandalous one outside. So could you imagine when Samuel comes to pick the next king and he goes through the seven sons and he's like, where is the eighth one? Oh, he's out in the field. But we don't really consider him a son, a brother. Well, go get him. Samuel says, we aren't going to eat until he's here. That's what the text says. So they go and get David and then that's what happens. David says, this is, or Samuel says, this is the one. And anoints this rejected, despised sinner to be the next king of Israel. Because God looks at the heart, doesn't look at the stature. And so after that comes the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. If you're not familiar with this story, just real quickly, the story of David and Goliath is the Israelite army is out in battle against the Philistines. They're kind of arch enemies. And there's this one huge nine foot, nine inch monster of a man who comes out every day and says, just why are we doing this, people? Just send out a warrior, we'll battle, and whoever wins, the other nation will become subject to. They'll be the vassal kingdom. Let's just do it. Like, there's no reason for us to shed all this blood. Just send somebody out. And let's just call it a day. And the Israelites are shaking in their boots, right? They don't know what to do. Saul's there. Everybody's freaking out. And he would do this day after day after day after day. Okay? So that's the setup. Now, there's one part of the story I want to focus on that gets to this whole idea of intentions and misunderstanding. I know you're like, isn't that where we started? Okay, here we go. First Samuel 17, all right? You got to keep in mind David, the rejected one, the despised one, but been anointed king, 1 Samuel 17, the story picks up like this. Now Jesse said to his son, we could put that in quotation marks, right? Says to his son David, take this effa of roasted grain, it was a measurement of grain, and these 10 loaves for your brothers and bring them quickly to them. And take the 10 cheeses for the field officer. The field officer was in keto. He ate keto, so he can't give him the bread. <laughs> just take the cheese. He's a high-fat content diet. First evidence of the keto diet right there, okay? So... He says, greet your brothers and bring home some token from them, right? So bring home something that's theirs so I know that they're alive. So Saul and your brothers together with all of Israel, they're at war with the Philistines in the Valley of Elah. So Jesse sends David out, why? To just check on the safety of his brothers, right? Just check, go this dangerous thing, we don't really care what happens to you, David, honestly, just go check out my other sons, how are they doing, right? Now, this is like a recon mission for dad. So David goes, and it says, early the next morning, having left the flock with the shepherds, David packed up and he set out as Jesse had commanded. I think it's interesting that it doesn't say David packed up and set out as his father commanded. It says as Jesse had commanded. It's just an interesting thought. Okay. It says, he reached the barricade of the camp just as the army was on their way out and they were crying their shouts of battle, like psyching themselves up, right, pre-gaming, you know? only to, like Elias is going to come out and challenge him. They're like, I don't know. I don't know what to do, all right? Okay, so the Israelites and the Philistines, they drew up opposite on each other in battle array, right? So David entrusted what he had brought to the keeper of the baggage and hastened to the battle line where he greeted his brothers, right? So he honored his father by doing what his father asked him to do. Think about that. Think about the legend of David's birth, his life, how he's being treated. He honors his father in the middle of all that takes the stuff he's supposed to. Now, it says, while he was talking with them, the Philistine champion by name Goliath of Gath came up from the ranks of the Philistines and he spoke as before. Come on, bring somebody out. Let's do this. It's about time. And David listens to this. And when all the Israelites saw the man, they all retreated before him and they were terrified. Because according to the story, he was nine feet, nine inches tall. That is over a foot and a half taller than the world's tallest man, according to the Guinness Book of World Records. There might be some hyperbole in the story. I don't know. But they're freaking out. And the Israelites had been saying, do you see this man coming out? He comes up and he insults Israel because what this is, this is a battle of the gods. You have to understand, historically speaking, this is a battle between the god Dagon, which is the god of the Philistines, and Yahweh, the god of the Israelites. And so whoever wins, their god is more powerful. There was no separating those two realities in the ancient world, right? And so, so you would become their vassal. You would start worshiping their god. There's all this stuff intermixed. So it was an insult to Israel. Your god is weak, is what Goliath is saying. And then they start saying this, the king will make whoever kills him a very wealthy man. He will give his daughter to him and declare his father's family exempt from taxes in Israel. Again, I want to honor how terrible this patriarchal reality is. (laughs) Let's just honor that, okay? Let's recognize this is not an intended design for humanity that women are treated as if they can just be given to some other man, okay? So let's honor that in this moment. Now, David hears all of this and he says, okay, back up. What's going to happen to the guy that kills this guy? Like how, whoa, 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 whoa. How will the man who kills this Philistine and frees Israel from disgrace be rewarded? Now you've got my attention. Why? Why? Well, if you'd been living out in the shepherd field, rejected by your family, an outsider, an outcast with no feelings of a hope or a future, you'd be a little ambitious too when an opportunity presented itself. See, David was ambitious, and he saw this opportunity to advance his life. You cannot look at the life of David and not recognize that he was an ambitious figure. And in this moment, think about it, the rejection he's faced, the way he's been treated his whole life. And he starts hearing, oh, the king's going to, like, tax-free wealth. He's like, hmm, let's see here. My life as it stands or the opportunity for getting out of it? I'll take the way to get out of it. So David goes, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that should insult the armies of the living God? By the way, David's about 28 years old right now. 28. So you have this idea in your mind that he was, like, 14. Ah, eh, no. <laughs> I read this really great article this week on, like, how David at times is shown to be this very tall, big man of stature and at times is thought to be this short, ruddy little guy. It just depends on what you want out of the narrative. Like, it's very, it was very interesting. But he, at the, this time, he's about 28 years old. And so he's out there Now you say, well, who are these Philistines, these uncircumcised people? Well, circumcision was really a part of the ancient Near East. Most of the countries around Israel practiced circumcision, but the Philistines were quite unique, and they didn't. The Philistines were a part of the Sea Peoples, and the Sea Peoples had come at the end of the Bronze Age and invaded all of the Mediterranean, and they just brought in the Dark Ages in the Mediterranean. It was crazy what they did. Really, it's fascinating. You should look up Sea Peoples and watch some YouTube videos. But they came in and basically destroyed every superpower of the day, and this was the end of the Bronze Age, so somewhere a little bit, maybe a hundred years before the Exodus time period, the Philistines came as part of nine people groups, nine different people groups from the Mediterranean, probably of Greek heritage. They were kind of mercenaries. They were pirates. And they would come in, and they had better weapons. They had advanced technology. And they, they literally just wiped out the whole Mediterranean rim. Like every major city, they just conquered. Now, Egypt was the only ones that were able to stand against them, but they decimated Egypt in the process of it. There were two battles, one by land, one by sea, and that wasn't like a, the I understand the irony of what I just said to, you know, but that, there was a sea battle and a land battle. Sorry. We are highly focused on our American history this morning, I can see. So... But Israel, but Egypt would never be the same, but they did withstand them. And then what happens is they resettled the Sea Peoples, of which the Philistines were part of. They resettled them in the land of Canaan as kind of a buffer state. So, like, if you were going to attack Egypt, you'd have to kill them first. You know, that was their plan. And so, so the Philistines are there in that area, right? Very skilled. So, so this battle is all over land. Don't ever think <laughs> it's always about land in that area, always about land. So they're in, in great... Great, like they're constantly battling one another, constantly. And so there's this contempt between these two peoples. And so so David's like, this uncircumcised Philistine, like, you know, and in the back of his mind, he's like, wealth and the king's daughter. (laughs) And I'm out of here, Jesse. (laughs) Now, the oldest son, Eliab, hears this, right? And the text says, when Eliab, the oldest brother, heard this, he got mad. He got angry with David and he said, why did you even come here? Why did you even come here? Why? Why are you here? Who have you left the sheep with in the wilderness? Like, shouldn't you be out tending the sheep with the hired hands? Like, Why are you even here? I know your arrogance. I know your dishonest heart. You just came down here to enjoy the battle to watch us suffer. You just came down here to see us humiliated. Talk about questioning your intentions. And David protested. He said, what have I done now? I was just talking. I was just talking. You see, Eliab questions David's intentions from a place of personal woundedness. I mean, you talk about contempt that Eliab would have had for David all growing up, imagine the jealousy, the anger, the hurt, the embarrassment, given what had happened in 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 through 7, where they brought out the seven. And it says that they started with Eliab. And as they came, it says, Samuel looked at Eliab and he thought, surely the anointed is here before the Lord. He saw Eliab as a handsome, young, strong man, much like myself, <laughs> just a specimen. <laughs> and Eliab must have just stood up a little bit taller in that moment, you know, started rocking back and forth a little bit, thinking this is it. I don't know what it is, but this guy's a big deal and like they're looking at me and he stopped, but the Lord whispers to Samuel, "Don't judge him from his appearance or from his lofty stature because I have rejected him." And so Samuel moves on to the next one. Imagine the wound that that would have made you to felt as Eliab. Imagine how deep that wound gets when you go down and down and down and down and then you bring this child who you don't even consider a brother, who's pure evil, right? Imagine that wound that would sit in Eliab's heart. But in that moment, when David is questioned again, when he's antagonized again, I love this little verse. In verse 30, it just says, he turned away from him to another. He just turned away from him. And he asked what? The same question. What's going to happen to the man who kills Goliath? What's going to happen? Tell me again. I want to make sure I got the details right because this is a big deal. (laughs) I'm putting a lot on the line here. And they all gave him the same answer as before. I love that David just kept... Moving towards his opportunity for influence. He just kept moving towards it. He just turned away. He didn't engage. He didn't argue. He didn't say, You son of a, how could you? I don't you know, have my whole life. <laughs> he didn't take the loaf of bread and throw it in his face. He just turned away. He says, I, I can't get distracted. And then it says this in the text, that the words that David had spoken were overheard. So David's asking, and he's like, who is this Philistine giant who comes out to defile the Lord, to embarrass Israel? Who is this person? And the word gets to the king, Saul, and he sends for him. And the rest, as they say, is history. David goes and faces Goliath, kills Goliath, cuts his head off, (laughs) takes his head with him. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. We'll save that for another one. What I don't want us to miss in this story, the wisdom that it offers us when our lives are filled with people who would assume the worst in us, is that David didn't get distracted by that. He didn't get distracted by the accusations. He just pressed forward. So in your life, in my life, in our everyday normal life, when we go to work tomorrow, when we drop the kiddos off at school, when we hang out with the others that are retired, when our motivations get get questioned, what do we do? What can we learn? So I would say this. I would say whenever that happens, we should take a moment for reflection. Right? We should actually hit the pause button and we should consider our intentions. Are they pure? And let me answer the question for you. Probably not 100%. (laughs) Can we just own that, right? Like, our intentions are not always just pure love. Maybe 99%, but there's always that 1%, right? Because you could say, here's an example. You could do something for your spouse, your partner, right? And you say, I did it because I love them. But then they don't say thank you. And you lose your mind. (laughs) Or they don't notice it. made the bed this morning and they didn't even say thank you. (laughs) I've unloaded the dishwasher seven times this week. I mowed the lawn. They didn't even notice it, right? So 99%, that 1% will come out at some point in time, it'll eek out of you, right? So it's always worth when our intentions are questioned to just hit the pause button and consider it. Am I in my ambition to be faithful to love, right? Let's assume that question of us as peacemakers right, my ambition to love, am I really being faithful to the law of love? Am I really, do I, are my intentions, so it's a good question to ask. Another thing to think about is when my motivations are questioned, I ought to assume something, and I think this story reveals this, we should assume that I might have unintentionally reopened an unhealed wound. In, in some way, I might not understand it, I might not have done anything intentionally, but I I tapped at a sensitive spot. And that might be why I'm getting the response. And what that can tell you is that there's a good chance that this isn't even about you. right? The legend of David and his whole upbringing it was never about David. It was about Mitzavit. right? It, it, Eliab's frustration with him on the battlefield had nothing to do with David. It had everything to do with he had been passed up. There's that wound. He didn't feel brave enough, strong enough, for whatever reason. And so it's important for us to remember that most of the time, it really isn't about you. (laughs) That there's something deeper going on. And what that does is it gives us the opportunity to be grace-filled people. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew that all the pain and hurt and evil that he encountered had nothing to do with him. It was all wounds, all baggage from other areas of life. That's why John would say that Jesus was on the cross, and his whole act on the cross was this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing, right? that's the point. And so in that moment, you realize it's not about you. You just shake the dust off your sandals and you walk bravely down your path. One of my favorite teachings that we have from Jesus, just shake that dust right off. I love it. We live in a world that just, oh, we, 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 we dust dusted up our sandals and we just get mad about it. You got dust on my sandals. Now you're going to clean them. Now, I'm not cleaning anything. No, you're going to clean them. I'm not cleaning anything. You're going to clean them. It's your fault. You know why it's your fault? I can tell you why it's your fault. Every dust on my sandals, be your fault. when the truth is all you got to just walk away. That's it. We get so enwrapped and enthalled and arguing. It's not even just shake the dust off your sandals, walk away. This isn't a person of peace in your life right now. doesn't mean you don't love them or care for them. It says, I can't put myself in this situation. It's just gonna be best. You just shake the dust off and you walk bravely down your path like David. What would have happened if David would have let Eliab get into his brain right then? What would have happened if, if he would have heard Eliab say, Why are you even here? It's like, I don't know. I don't like you. Leave. I'm going back to the field. What what would have happened if he would have let that stop him? Right? The narrative would have us believe nothing would have, like David would have never advanced forward. This was a crucial moment in the whole history of David, right? We, we let that happen to us and it just takes us out of the game so much and we just have to shake the dust off, that's resiliency. You don't change the person, you don't worry about their opinion of you, you don't get caught up in all that because you know it's not about you. There's a wound there and there's a grace that you extend, there's an empathy, there's a sympathy. Now, don't stand there and let him keep piling dust on your sandals. (laughs) Metaphorically speaking, you have to walk away. Like David just turned away. Just turned away. That's resiliency. You get back up and you move forward in love. You get back up and you move forward in love. Nelson Mandela said this. He said, do not judge me by my success. Judge me by how many times I fall down and I got back up again. It'd be easy to judge Nelson Mandela by his successes. He says, no, that's not where, but how many times did I fall down and I got back up? That's resiliency. That's a person who understands how woundedness works and can offer the healing power of grace in this world. It's not being a doormat to people. It's not letting people do whatever they want, but it's recognizing the cruciform life that I'm called to is not door to door, get you to say the prayer, come to my church. The cruciform life is what is brought upon me in pain, what's brought upon me This evil, what's brought upon me of bad bad assumptions, what's brought upon me is returned in love and grace. That's what it means to die to self. That's what it means to be resurrected to new life in Christ. That's what holds the world together. Just a handful of people that will be willing to say, I get it, there's some wound there, I'm just going to shake the dust off my feet. I'm going to turn away. But I'm not going to return violence for violence. And that holds the world together. And here's the thing. In our lives, in this world, like what makes you and I better when we live this out, what makes the world better is resiliency. will get you noticed. And it's going to give you opportunities for influence. You keep getting back up. Eventually, it gets noticed by the king. (laughs) Word will get to the king. And influence will happen and we need more people of influence that are peacemakers in this world. That's the opposite of what our world would say. Fight and scratch and claw and kick people off the ladder. Get where you need to go. Stand up for yourself. But the cruciform life is, nope, I'm just going to be resilient. I'm going to keep going down my path. I'm not going to create victims along the way. I'm not going to let someone else's wound make me a wounder that's the power of sin and death. I'm not going to do that. That's broken in me. That's broken in me. That's what the gospel says. That pattern is broken in me. So as we wrap up today, what is it that God's inviting you into? Maybe you're in this place where you feel misunderstood, and I would just encourage you to start with prayer. Maybe God's just inviting you to pray. And you have heard me say this. I'll be the first person to talk about the mystery of prayer. Sometimes I don't want to do it. Sometimes I don't get it. I wonder if it matters at all. But Jesus seemed to think it mattered, so I do it. <laughs> it's a great mystery. But maybe you just need to hear the Spirit whispering to you. you. Maybe just pray about it. Just pause and pray about it. Pray about wisdom and how to handle it, how to turn the other way without creating a wound. Maybe the Spirit's inviting you to... To be a person who stops assuming you know other people's intentions, ooh, that one hurt. We all want to imagine ourselves as David, misunderstood, mistreated, but maybe I'm a liar more often than I choose to acknowledge. Maybe I fill in all the gaps in the stories around me with negative assumptions, and I just know. And maybe the Spirit of God is whispering to us today, let's not do that anymore. Let's not do that anymore. And I hope all of us feel a sense of the Spirit of God whispering and saying, just move forward bravely on your path. Move forward bravely on your path. David, move forward on that path. This is my out. This is my ascension. This is my victory. This is the way I walk away from the pain and the hurt of what I have. So we move bravely on our path. So we're going to sing this song, The Goodness of God. And while we do that, I want to encourage you to finish filling out that Connect card, check the boxes that apply, and just reflect on the last hour. I want to encourage you to be generous uh, this morning as you think about giving, to continue the work of what we're doing together as a community. And just open up your heart to these few moments. We live in a rushed week. We go, 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 right? But just maybe pause for a moment so you can just let the song wash over you and in a few in a minute or two partway through the song our room hosts will make their way through the room collecting the baskets at the table and receiving your gifts and your connect cards on the aisles if you're in the bleachers you can use the orange hope is here kiosk to drop your connect card and giving envelope in there and if you're feeling today just really deflated Because you believe your intentions are good, but man, there's just this situation, a person that can't see it. I just pray that God will give you the strength to turn away, to recognize that there's a wound there. Your heart can be filled with compassion and you could get a little wisdom and inspiration from David and know that your influence will come, right? But stay on that path that you're on. So let's sing this together, finish up our time, and then I'll have our blessing for the week as we head out. tradition uh, tells us that the Psalms are filled with poetry that David wrote that reflect those first 28 years of his life before he was anointed by Samuel. They deal with the heartache and the pain and the feeling of rejection by family and friends. There's actually a Psalm line that says, they've accused me of stealing when I haven't stolen, which is where the rabbis get the story from. And it's a reminder that Those painful moments in our lives are our spaces where redemption takes place. And don't equate that with purpose or meaning or this is you have to. There is randomness and there is pain, I think. But there's redemption in all of that. That's the goodness of God. That's the goodness of God, right? That that when we live our lives towards love, there's nothing that's unredeemable. There's nothing that's unhealable. It's a good thing to remember. So I would invite you to open your arms if you want to for our blessing this week. We do this every week if you're a guest with us, just a, hopefully a word of truth um, that you take with you into the week. And so may love bless you this week with a deeply resilient spirit in the face of adversity. And may your heart be tender to the pain in others and your skin tough to their painful words. And may you find yourself surprised by your ability to turn away and offer grace and pursue your path without distraction. And if today you sense a whisper from God that a past wound is affecting your present relationships, may you begin to experience divine love and healing. And may, by an act of grace, of divine work, may you see that your self-awareness of that wound is in fact the beginning of healing and transformation, the power of confession. And so this week, may the divine presence guide you in your everyday normal life as you strive to be a person of peace at work, at school, in your neighborhood, and in your home. And may the words of your mouth and the thoughts of your heart be true and compassionate and kind to all. Amen. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next Sunday for our campfire party. We're going to celebrate in here the summer. Food trucks afterwards. It's going to be a fun day, so bring the whole family out.